The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He's from the Society of St. Pius V, and he's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. How are you doing? Good, Father. Thanks for Good. being here tonight. Absolutely. Good to see you. You too. We've got a lot of emails to get into tonight, Father. This uh, first one is from a viewer who writes in and says, Is clerical pedophilia in the church today unprecedented in the history of the church? Well, the fact that there would be such a thing as clerical pedophilia, uh, uh, you know, is not necessarily unprecedented, right? There are crimes that have been committed by clergy in the church. And the, the church, from the earliest days, insisted that the church be left to judge these cases, right? But we're not talking simply about an isolated case of clerical pedophilia here. We're talking about systematic, endemic um, clerical pedophilia such that uh, we, we have almost, well, what, what they're calling a, a homosexual mafia in the church, right? This is something different from an individual isolated case of grave sin. Um, we have, after Vatican II, uh, men being into, uh, allowed into the seminaries who were already corrupted and uh, pursuing their corruption within within the ranks of the clergy, uh, they then moved up to become the monsignors and the bishops and the cardinals. All of this in the aftermath of, of Vatican II. And uh, they promoted each other and... Uh, they are still promoting each other within the Vatican II Church. They are protecting each other. They are covering for each other. They're uh, actually providing for each other new victims, what they're doing. And we are told then by credible authorities within the Novus Ordo that this goes right to the very top, involving Francis himself. And um, I, if one were to ask any of the Novus Ordo Catholics themselves, any of the conservative New Order Catholics, if you ask them, uh, if they think that Francis really was involved, and one of the accusers, Archbishop Vigano, is correct in saying that he was involved, I would, I would guess, actually, that you would say most of the conservative Novus Ordo Catholics, maybe all of them, or almost all, would say yes, they believe that Francis was somehow involved. If he's not one of them, he is certainly promoting them and covering for them. I bet you that would be <clears throat> the answer given by most of the conservative Novus Ordos. And then you might ask, well, why do you support that? And they would say, well, I, I don't support that. And you would say, well, why do you tolerate that then? You would say, well, I, I have to tolerate that because He's the Pope, they would say, and there's nothing anyone can do about it. I, I believe that's the answer you'd get if you were to ask them. But 
I think what it comes down to is really uh, they're getting used to the idea that this can be so and you really can't do anything about it. And ultimately, it doesn't really matter. That ultimately, it really doesn't matter anyway. And they just basically carry on uh, in their conservative Novus Ordo modernism as though, well, they've come to terms with it and there's nothing they can do about it. So as far as I'm concerned, Ultimately, it really doesn't matter in terms of the practice of their Novus Ordo modernist religion. And this is a, this is a tragedy, but this is the, the victory of modernism. This is where uh, modernism really wins, so to speak, uh, when the conservatives who still have the faith um, are basically losing their grip on the whole idea of what the Catholic Church is and what it was meant to be what the papacy is and what it, what it is meant to be by Christ. And they're beginning to adjust, they're beginning to adjust their understanding of what the Catholic Church is. They're, they're adjusting their concept of what the papacy is around Francis. Now, he's basically dictating to them uh, their understanding. Even the conservative Novosaurus, uh, who denounce what he's doing, are adjusting their expectations. And thus their very concept of the papacy and the church around Francis, all to somehow explain the idea that he's the Pope and there's nothing we can do about it. And Father, I think that leads perfectly into this next question we have um, in, in regards to the Society of St. Pius X, and we received a request for you to comment on this uh, kind of recognize and resist mm -hmm. theory that they call it in the SSPX, where Essentially, they have this idea that the conciliar popes, they are true popes. Uh, we can't question that. But we are essentially able to pick and choose what we want to believe from them. And so this seems mm. to be exactly what you're describing here. Well, me. unfortunately, it's true. Yeah, I mean, the, the whole idea that I just expressed here uh, does apply to the recognize and resist mentality. Um, and this where, is where I find the real poison or the real uh, toxin in uh, the recognize and resist idea uh, of the Society of St. Pius X. This is why I find it so dangerous. That they find it necessary to adjust uh, what they say um, according to the need to um, be in the good graces of the modernists, notably Francis, the modernist in chief, right? And uh, the result of that is that they, I mean, not only their, their leadership, but their clergy and their laity are actually adjusting, perhaps even unawares, they're adjusting their concept of the church. They're adjusting their concept of the papacy. And somehow in order to accommodate Francis, and to avoid the question uh, uh, that what, what he's doing is simply uh, antithetical to the, to the papacy, to the office of the papacy. <clears throat> um, you know, the, the argument uh, about the, uh, the canonizations that Francis has done, for example. I mean, the, the um, writers of the, 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 the dogmatic theology books approved by the church. Uh, Zubi Zaretta and others like him told us that the, um, the canonization of saints is, in fact, 
infallible. It is, it is, uh, it involves what is called the secondary object of the church's infallibility. Because she can't have us praying to say that those who are not in heaven might even be in hell. Um, she can't have us invoking their intercession almost instead of asking a saint for help. Uh, you know, leaving the faithful open to asking a demon for help is that we're conjuring evil spirits, you know. And you can't hold up as a paragon of faith and, and uh, extraordinary virtue um, someone who actually set the example of sinfulness and um, well, just had evil. So, I mean, the church has to be have the guaranteed authority to declare who is actually a saint and who is not. The church never declares who is, uh, whose souls are lost. Um, there's never even been a formal declaration by the church using the ecclesiastical authority to declare Judas having been lost. And even though we have the authority of the Gospels, the church does not invoke the authority that Christ gave the church uh, to declare that. But the church does have the authority to declare who has been saved and who is now in the in the beatific vision of Almighty God and who represents and not only an intercessor in heaven, but an example of virtue here on earth for all of us to follow. Now, because of Francis canonizing some of the most, what shall I say, unlikely, shall we say, candidates, right? Uh, Virtue, I mean, he's canonizing those who brought in the Novus Ordo, you know, the modernists, the modernists who have, have authored the Novus Ordo and imposed it on all these, all these poor, innocent Catholic people. At least they were innocent at the time. Um, and, uh, you know, the, now, now look what they have to do. Now look what the conservative Novus Ordo's have to do. And the Society of St. Pius X. They have to adjust their understanding of the canonization of saints. They have to adjust that to somehow explain that away. How can a real pope canonize someone who is manifestly not a saint in the traditional Catholic sense of the term, right? And not a saint is such that in former days before Vatican II, there never would have been any thought of canonizing them as the Novus Ordo has, right? And you know that that's a fact. I mean, there are those being canonized by the Novus Ordo who would not have been canonized before. This is why the Novus Ordo has changed the rules, repeatedly changed the rules necessary to canonize saints, to allow for the canonization of their non-saints. Uh, so the Novus Ordo itself has to at least tacitly acknowledge, yes, we had to change the rules because the people we're canonizing would never have been canonized before. And so, together with this now, the conservative Novus Ordo people have had to adjust their whole concept of the authority of the church in canonizing saints. And they had to, they had to adjust to this because of Francis, pure and simple. He is forcing them to redefine the papacy, even in their own minds. And this is the great evil of modernism. Um, it forces even those who are trying to hold on to recognizing uh, the authority of the modernists um, to adjust to their teachings. Uh, there are any number of things. For example, uh, in former times, it was considered to be absolutely impossible for a true pope to um, 
to flatly contradict the ordinary magisterial teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. The ordinary magisterium. I mean, we're, we're kind of stuck in a way on the idea of the extraordinary magisterium and, and papal pronouncements, uh, which are ex cathedra pronouncements. And uh, unfortunately, again, the, the conservative Novus Ordo Catholics, um, and they're joined also by some of the would-be traditional Catholics too, have had to adjust their concept of the, of the ordinary magisterium. I mean, the ordinary magisterium is, is that teaching authority of the church uh, day by day, you know, decade by decade, century by century. This is her mainstay. The extraordinary magisterium is exactly that. It is an extraordinary pronouncement uh, delivered because of a particular need, a particular crisis of faith that has come up. <coughs> and the, the uh, supreme apostolic authority has to be exercised by the Pope speaking as cathedra to clarify what the faith is and what it is not. But the church has this, this infallible, ordinary mag magisterial teaching authority in her day by day teaching. And, um, it seems now that, you know, the, the conservative Novus Ordo types and the, uh, even unfortunately, uh, a lot of the traditional, the would be traditional Catholic types, <laughs> of minds and souls are willing to, to, to let that go. They're willing to sort of downplay the ordinary magisterium of the church and, and acknowledge, well, you know, a true Pope can contradict that and it's not a problem. Um, and so they've gone to great lengths, some of these writers to show why in the past now we thought that a Pope couldn't really canonize a non-saint. Well, now we see that that's possible because that's not covered by the infallible authority of the church. You know, in the past, it was thought that popes could not contradict the ordinary teaching magisterium of the church. But now we see that, yes, it's possible it can be done because now we have a different concept. We have to adjust our concept uh, away from what it was in the past to say, well, look, it's happening. Francis is doing it, so it must be somehow possible. And so that must mean that somehow it the ordinary, the teaching authority of the church, the ordinary magisterium is not infallible, at least not in all cases. So you see what they're doing. You see what's happening here. Sounds like perfect modernism. They're eroding, they're eroding the faith yeah. of, uh, of those who are so stuck on the idea that Francis is the Pope, must be the Pope. You cannot question that he's a Pope. Mm -hmm. And so they are looking at Francis as the fixed reference point of papacy, and they're adjusting their very concept of the papacy and the church itself and the church's authority to teach around Francis. This is exactly what the modernists wanted to do. And, and I think another one of those adjustments, Father, is mentioned by a writer here when she, talk, she says another uh, excuse that the recognize and resist groups use is that Vatican II is not a dogmatic council, but rather a pastoral council. Mm -hmm. You know, we hear that a lot. And um, Well, I mean, this is what John Twenty-Third said. But if it's a pastoral council, but they start issuing dogmatic uh, declarations and so on, I mean, you know, again, how do they explain that? Right. You know, right. and how how do they explain that Vatican II is saying that there are things that are in the Gospels taught by divine authority in the Gospel, you know, um, and then readjust the the church the church's whole concept of ecumenism and herself and her faith. 
How do they adjust that around mere pastoral uh, measures, you know? So um, I understand what you're saying, and this, this is a... Yes, it doesn't work uh, from a Catholic point of view. It only works from a modernist point of view. Um, and unfortunately, um, there are those who still have the faith now who are so so doggedly determined that Francis is the Pope, the whole Pope, and nothing but the Pope, and he has to be the Pope, and you can't suggest or even think for a minute that he might not be the Pope because of what he's doing. No, we have to take what he's doing, and we have to make the whole church now somehow adjust our concept of the church around what Francis is doing. And this is exactly the program of the modernists now being accomplished in the conservative Novus Ordos and um, and also even in, I'm sorry, the Society of St. Pius X is a principal contributor to this, to this uh, disaster. Because what the Novus Ordo has not been able to do so far by um, simply um, destroying the faith in the hearts of the people, the Novus Ordo is eroding, is, is accomplishing by mere erosion. And um, the, the evil of it is, everybody is, is everybody is bad, so everybody is damaging. Well, Father, to, to form a correct opinion of this, could you also address the issue concerning when we are obligated to follow the teachings and disciplines of the church and when we are not? So when exactly is the church infallible? When do we have to follow? Well, we don't have to follow the church only when it's infallible. I mean, that's one of the most important things we have to realize. You know, the, the Roman pontiffs, right? And um, not only the Roman pontiffs, but the doctors of the church and, you know, all of those who had real authority in the church have told us that you have to follow orders, uh, legitimate orders of the church, just as you would of your own father, you know. You have to have a very serious reason for... Uh, as a child, right, defying the order of your father. Um, you are subject to inobedience, right? And this is a concept that I'm afraid is, is present only in the traditional Catholics anymore. It's being completely eroded away again, and as I say, in the, in the Novus Ordo, even the conservative ones. Uh, and in the Society of St. Pius X, which has insisted that the Novus Ordo Popes are Popes, and you can't question that. But no, in practice, we really don't have to do anything they say that we don't agree with. And that's really been their official position all this time. That's what they've actually done in practice. They, they, have, in, they have said, yes, they're the Popes, and no, we actually do all these things we're doing, defying all the restrictions on working in all these dioceses and preaching and administering sacraments, and they've been marrying people and hearing confessions all this time, uh, despite all the prohibitions, the traditional prohibitions against doing this, against legitimate authority. And they, they just have had this recognize and resist, and this says we recognize he's the Pope, and we resist everything he does. <laughs> <laughs> and again, what is more deleterious to one's concept of the papacy than that mentality? Um, so, uh, I mean, if anything is, is going to be responsible for destroying the traditional Catholic concept of the papacy and the church, 
and the evil of ecumenism and so on, it's going to be the Society of St. Pius X. I mean, it hurts to say this because I, I still have friendships among the priests there, and I still have a high regard for them, individually, personally. And, uh, but, um, I mean, the very idea <coughs> that you can have in the Novus Ordo Church the traditional faith and practice the traditional faith within there. And you ask them, well, is the Novus Ordo really the, the, the same religion as the traditional Catholic religion, most of the, I, I think most of the St. Pius the X clergy would say, well, no, it's not. Um, and that's why they brought in their new mass and their new sacraments, uh, to be not coexistent with the traditional mass and traditional sacraments. The, the historical fact of the matter is they, they brought in their, their new mass and their new sacraments, and for 20 years, did everything they could to prevent anyone from having the traditional Mass and Sacraments. They wanted their new Mass to completely replace and thus obliterate the traditional Mass. They wanted to make it simply go away. And uh, the same with their new Sacraments. They, they were introduced to replace the traditional rites of the Sacraments. And um, so I think, you know, any of the pious attend clergy who know the history of all this and look back beyond the day they were ordained, you know, to see what was happening the day I was ordained and other many other priests were ordained, they would see this is what we were up against. <clears throat> this is what we were dealing with. There was no indult mass or anything of the kind. You know? um, it was absolutely forbidden. And so... Uh, I mean, they, they just brought that indult mass in uh, with Ecclesia Day when Archbishop Lefebvre consecrated bishops. And they said, whoops, we better do something. Otherwise, we're going to lose all these people. So we better give them the, the traditional mass on our terms to keep them in the fold. Um, so, Tom, the, the, uh, the problem is here that um, I think most of the pious attend clergy would agree, and I think uh, actually most of the, pi the, the pious attend faithful would agree that the Novus Ordo is not the traditional Catholic religion, and modernism is not the traditional Catholic faith. <clears throat> I mean, you have, as I mentioned before, the faith, and then you have the practice of the faith, the religion. And we have our traditional Catholic faith, <clears throat> which is in the traditional catechisms, uh, the catechism of the Council of Trent, and so on. And you have the practice of that faith, which is the traditional Catholic religion, with the Mass and the sacraments and the moral teaching and all the rest. But in the case of Vatican II and, and the modernists then who gained power and hijacked that council and produced those ambivalent documents, at best they're ambivalent, right? And then the bishops came back and imposed the Novus Ordo. And yes, they're the ones who voted on those documents. So they impose what they understand those documents to really mean. And they're the ones who voted on them. So one cannot uh, oppose the spirit of Vatican II with the reality of Vatican II. I mean, the same people who voted on the documents came back and put it into effect. Come on, let's be, let's be real about this now. So um, most of the uh, followers of Pius X, I think, would agree that, you know, Vatican II is modernism, and the religion that came out of it is modernism with its mass and its sacraments and so on. It all was putting into effect the modernist principles of Vatican II. So how do you say, therefore, that 
you know, modernism is not Catholicism in faith, and the Novus Ordo, therefore, that comes from modernism is not Catholicism in terms of the practice of religion, how do you say that they can coexist in the same church? It's the whole principle of ecumenism, that you can have multiple religions in the same church and different faiths in the same church, right? And uh, so by, by claiming this, they're already um, agreeing to the fundamental principle of modernism that the church basically is, is a great church encompassing uh, multiple faiths, whether it's two or 20 or 200 or 2,000, doesn't matter. The principle is something you agree to. It's, it's already there. It's the principle behind ecumenism, right? The ultimate ecumenism, the ultimate synthesis of all religions, which involves saying, demeaning dogma, saying, oh, dogmas have to go. We have to sacrifice these dogmas. If we're ever going to be united, we have to hold these dogmas lightly as a matter of sort of like you like chocolate and I like vanilla. That's the difference of dogma, really. Right? It's not essential. As long as we're like the Protestants, we could agree to 39 theses that we can all agree to. Well, let's make it 35. Well, maybe it's down to 26. I mean, this the whole idea, though, is it's, it's all there. The principle's already in place. So uh, unfortunately, the Society of St. Pius X is contributing to that idea. Unwittingly, I'd like to think unwittingly, hopefully not wittingly, not deliberately, <laughs> But I think they're they're definitely on the wrong track here. So uh, I mean I don't know if that answers your question or not, but I, sure. okay. I think that recognize and resist idea is untenable in terms of Catholicism, uh, the Catholic faith, and I think that the result of it is going to be, as I mentioned, that all of those who follow that are going to gradually find themselves thinking more like modernists and accepting modernism in principle. Sure. And ultimately, then in practice, too. All right, well, then let's switch gears a little bit. Father, could you please address the subject of Jansenism and how dangerous it can be for traditional Catholics? Well, if you go back to the teachings of Jansenius, um, I mean, he's, he's a Catholic priest, right? and he, the 1600s, he actually submitted his Augustinus, the, the name of his book. He submitted it to the authority of the church. Uh, it was condemned. And um, I have to go back and brush up, Tom, as time goes on. You know, the old brain cells get kind of dusty, I guess. But uh, uh, I don't know that Jansenius himself was ever actually labeled a heretic. Uh, he did submit his teachings to the authority of the church, the judgment of the church. But unfortunately, his teachings were very, very deadly. Um, <clears throat> out of his teachings came the Synod of Pistoia, with, with its uh, demand for a, like a democratic church. In fact, much of the, uh, much of the Novus Ordo came, came out of that. And <clears throat> you notice also, well, maybe, maybe you didn't notice, but uh, historically, Jansenism was also at the root of a lot of the revolutions. Uh, even the French Revolution. Um, the, the idea of a democratic church, uh, obviously, as a revolutionary idea, was condemned by the, uh, well, the Synod of Pistoia, the Jansenist Synod of Pistoia, was condemned way back in 1694 um, by the Catholic Church as something absolutely 
non-Catholic, right? Heretical. Uh, it even taught that a just man, um, even with the grace of God to help him, cannot resist all temptations. That there are certain temptations, they're thinking notably about temptations of impurity, that even a just man, aided by the grace of God, cannot resist. Now, you can see, this fits exactly into Francis's teaching here. That you have a just man, has the grace of God, he can't help it. The devil made him do it, right? You can't hold him responsible. And, you know, just fast forward to Amoris Laetitia, where we're going to say, oh, these poor people, they're living in adultery. What can they do? They couldn't help it, you know? So they have to be able to receive communion under certain circumstances. In fact, if they stopped living together and they stopped having relations together, even though they're adulterous, it would do more harm than good. So we have to just accept the fact that they're doing the best they can. The whole idea, they're not living up to the ideal of a married life, but that doesn't mean it's sinful. <clears throat> married life, as the church taught it in the eyes of the and Francis and so on, in his whole cortege, are saying this was the ideal. <clears throat> but I mean, how often, you know, you don't see people living up to the ideal. Nobody can really do that. So we have to adjust our expectations morally to what is really practical, right? And, uh, but again, dial back to the Synod of Pistoia, the Jansenist teaching. Yes, <clears throat> I mean, we're so corrupt. It was a step in the direction of, of, of the Protestant teaching on grace, okay? That the human nature is so corrupted by sin that it is irretrievable, that it cannot be sanctified. It cannot be, um, even justified except by the, by the death of Christ on the cross, but not justified in the sense that we can give up sinning because that's impossible, okay? In all humility, we have to acknowledge the fact that by sin, our, our nature is so corrupt, we can't help but sin. This is, the, this is the Lutheran teaching, teaching of Luther, okay? And the Protestant teaching. And the good news of Luther was you don't have to give up sin. Just believe that Christ is your personal Savior, accept him, and your sins simply don't count. And then when you go to heaven, you're, you're just like a, a snow-covered dung hill. You're dung. Yeah, that's true. But you're covered with snow, the merits of Christ, and you're in heaven. So enjoy it. I mean, this is the heaven you have to be, you have to get used to. The idea of heaven. You know? But this is not the Catholic idea of heaven at all. The Catholic understanding is when Christ says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, that Christ actually was not commanding the impossible. That yes, we have to strive for that and in heaven we will be there and it will be given to us there. But we have to strive to follow our Lord who says, if you want to be my disciples, you must take up your cross every day and follow me in patience. He who perseveres in the, to the end will be saved. And that's not persevering and sinning he's talking about. And our Lord says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things I say? So the thing is, why do we expect that calling him our Lord, thinking of him our Lord, and then disobeying him by sinning? Why is that acceptable to him? When, he's, when he, he upbraids us with that question, why do you call me your Lord and not do what I command of you? Why would our Lord send out the apostles to tell them to preach the gospel and teach the faith to all nations, baptize them, 
and instruct them to observe the things that Christ commanded them, if they didn't have to observe the things that Christ commanded them anyway to be saved. So in other words, there's, there's a fundamental disconnect, and it cuts into the, the, the Lutheran misinterpretation, the disinformation coming from Luther about the epistle, epistle of St. Paul to the Romans. St. Paul says we are not saved by the works of the law. But St. Paul doesn't say we're not saved by the works of any law. I mean, Christ has his own law. We have the law of the New Testament. Is Luther interpreting St. Paul to say that we don't even have, to, even have to follow Christ's law to be saved? No, he's saying the law. He's referring, he's writing to those who still want to cling to the law of uh, the Old Testament law. They're, they're talking about the ritualistic laws of the temple and so on. They're talking about the Paschal Lamb, these figures of Christ that now were superseded by the reality of Christ. That's what St. Paul is saying. We're not saved by those old dead works of the old law. But, but St. Paul never said we're not saved by any works of any law, even the law of Christ. That's simply not, that's, that's an atrocity. And uh, we have to follow the law of Christ. There's a New Testament and with the New Testament, there's a new law. Um, it's not that the, the Ten Commandments have been left behind. They've been elevated to a higher level by the eight Beatitudes now. Christ expects more of us, not less of us. Uh, Christ no longer says, love one another. Christ no longer says, love your neighbor as yourself. He doesn't settle for that anymore. The Last Supper, he says, love one another as I have loved you. A new commandment I gave you. The New Testament, Christ expects more of us, not less of us. And certainly not just faith that he died on the cross and therefore we're saved and let's just accept it and get back to the business of sinning again. That's not what Christ taught. So in other words, Tom, um, Jansenism is, is dangerous because it wants to reseed that idea in the church of Christ. It's like a second wave of the Protestant error. And it can manifest in two ways. It can manifest itself in rigorism, a rigorism that uh, basically uh, goes along with the, the Protestant idea that human nature is so corrupt that our efforts can achieve nothing, uh, even aided by grace. And so why even try, you know? It can get us back into the mindset of the old uh, Tertullian, who was condemning everything in sight, you know, even innocent things, right? Saying the church was getting liberal back then, right? In the second century. Uh, Tertullian died out of the church because of a liberalism. He was setting his own standards, but these were not Christ's standards. But the other danger of, uh, of uh, Jansenism is it can make think, one think, well, if this is impossible for us to observe, if these laws are impossible for us to live, then God can't hold us responsible, right? So we can't be considered guilty if we if we do these bad things. And that's the tack that the modernists have taken in Francis now. Definitely. I think that's a good point to make. I think that's why, um, you know, Francis is so beloved by the world is because this is exactly what the world wants to hear. And that's why Protestantism was so big, and it still is. Uh, same thing with Jansenism, same thing with Francis now, is that's the easiest thing that you can tell I mean, it requires no effort on your part just to like check. Yeah, to yeah. do whatever you want. Sin, sin boldly doesn't matter. If you're the steward, call in the the master's debtors and 
tell them to sit down and write a different amount there. Uh, you know, cut your bill in half. Yeah, yeah that's very popular. Yeah. And that's what the chiefs, that's what the steward did to make himself beloved and acceptable and to provide for himself in this world a, f a good following and support, right? And this is what the modernists do. Whether they're in the rectory or they're, whether they're in the Vatican, this is what the modernists do. All right, well, Father, if we could, let's, uh, let's get <laughs> through one, one last email. So this is from a member of the Ciro Malabar Church. Mm -hmm. And he says that the church is considering removing the Latin elements that were forced onto us by the Portuguese in the 1600s. So these changes include uh, reverting to married priests. He says we're the only Eastern Catholic church with celibate priests. Uh, no tabernacles. Traditionally, communion is consumed entirely by the priest. And also no words of institution. So it says there are also smaller changes. But Father, what are your thoughts on this, on all of these changes in the Syro Malabar church? Well, Tom, I don't know a great deal about it, as you would expect offhand. I mean, we didn't study any of these things in depth. But um, the few minutes I've had to uh, actually ponder all of these things, um, there is in the history. Well, let me just let me just say this. Okay, we're talking about the Cyril Malabar Church, centered essentially in Kerala, India. Okay, and they claim to be following this um, Saint Adai, who was they claim a disciple of Saint Thomas the Apostle. Okay, so you'll find a real devotion to St. Thomas the Apostle in the schismatic churches of India, too. Okay, they all claim that they came from St. Thomas the Apostle. Um, a little history of that actually down in Florida, um, but I, I won't go into that right now, actually. Um, I'll save that for later. <clears throat> but we've had a little brush with, with the Cyril Malabar right down there in Florida. <clears throat> and the schismatics claiming to be, you know, of the of the progeny of St. Thomas the Apostle, but they're schismatics, nonetheless. And uh, they have a peculiar rite that they say is very ancient, that goes back to the time of Adai, and, and um, it has some peculiar characteristics. Like you mentioned there that they had no tabernacle, that the, the Portuguese Catholics, they say in the 1600s, forced some Latin rite practices on them, okay? Things that they didn't have in their rite before. Uh, tabernacles, right? They didn't reserve the Blessed Sacrament anywhere, right? They had their liturgies, and the priest would consume the host and the, the consecrated, uh, you know, the chalice and so on, and that would be the end of it. They had no real presence in their church beyond their liturgy, the time of their liturgy itself, right? And uh, again, this was changed by the Catholic Portuguese, where they reserved the Blessed Sacrament in tabernacles, according to what we're hearing here. And uh, the Catholic Portuguese of the Latin Rite also um, influenced them in such a way that they did not have married, married clergy, as this writer says. Uh, the other Eastern Rites all have married, allow married clergy, at least, at least priests, not bishops. Okay. And as Catholics, okay, if they're going to be Catholics, they can't have married bishops, but you can be, have a married priest in the Eastern Rite in the Catholic Church. But um, that they were denied even the uh, married priestly position in their Rite, because they say, 
this was forced upon them by the uh, Portuguese Catholic, right? But oddly enough, uh, and again, I, I speak with a little knowledge of this, which could be a dangerous thing. I intend to follow up on it, though, because it's a very good question. Historically, it's a very good question, even involving the Novus Ordo. Because in, <clears throat> there was a problem with their, their right that came down from Adai, that there was nothing identifiable <clears throat> as the words of consecration in their liturgy what they call the words of institution, or what the Novus Ordo in their, in their um, general instruction for the Novus Ordo calls the narrative of institution, okay? This, this rite that came down to them through centuries past, a traceable back to Adai, they say, did not have actually any identifiable words of consecration. So how could it be a valid mass? Well, the Novus Ordo actually presumed to try to answer that question for us. In 1994, this would have been under Paul, uh, John Paul II, right? They simply basically pronounced these rites equivalent. They didn't amend them so much. They didn't correct them, okay? I understand that there was, from on good authority, I believe, that there was a rite that actually had what would be identifiable as words of consecration, and another rite that had none. No identifiable words of consecration, and that the Novus Ordo simply lumped them together and said, that's fine, we're accepting them all as Catholic anyway. And that was in 1994. Now, that's a very telling, uh, telling uh, development in the Novus Ordo. If they actually approved a rite of liturgy with no words of consecration, uh, that doesn't solve the problem. Actually, it makes it a thousand times worse, right? Because essentially what they're doing is they're saying that, um, well, there's, there's a, a liturgy or a form of worship here that is not the Mass, has no real presence of Christ in the Blessed Sacrament. Um, and therefore, I mean, why would they have reserved that anyway, right? I mean, if they had no tabernacles, there's probably a reason uh, why they had no tabernacles anyway. They have a right without any narrative of consecration, words of consecration, if they really, I mean, where is the belief there, you know? And is it the Catholic belief? Is there anything, you know, that coincides with the Catholic belief? These are questions we can't leave to the Novus Ordo. We, uh, so I intend to look into this question. Um, I, I think what we're looking at here is that the Catholic Portuguese saw some serious flaws in this, uh, this rite, and uh, that they were trying to Catholicize it at the time. And now they're reverting back to the practices, the pre-Catholic uh, practices of essentially a schismatic church. Hmm. Um, the fact that the Novus Ordo recognizes it, of course, is just one more troubling thing about the Novus Ordo and the ecumenism of the Novus Ordo. Sure. Uh, they might as well recognize the Protestant uh, communion services that have no valid consecration anyway. But it's a question of the, the rites that are rather esoteric to us in the West, and I'd like to uh, examine the history of it. I know a, a gentleman, a young gentleman, who's done a bit of a study on this, and I intend to consult him and find the necessary sources to consult 
to uh, come up with a uh, a more precise answer. Okay. Um, so, but it's a, it's a very good question. It involves what's happening with the modernists today, inevitably. Also. Sure, sure, <laughs> inevitably. Well, Father, that was all I had tonight for tonight. So, uh, thank you for being here. I appreciate oh, your time. Well, you're welcome. Thank you. Is it so? All the questions are answered now. Right? All the questions are answered. There's no more. Okay. That was it. At least for tonight. For tonight, okay. that's fine. Okay. Well, thank you. God yeah, bless you. Tonight. No problem. Thank you. Thanks to all. By the way, I'd like to make a note here, if I may. You know, this coming Saturday, and I don't know if we'll have the program up by then. I hope we do. We have the Roser procession mm -hmm. here in Cincinnati. We'd like a big turnout for that. We'd like people to come. The weather's going to be horrible. All the more reason. All the more reason. If you believe that God will see the sacrifice you make and will be pleased with it and possibly... It will, you know, bring the mercy of God to save one life, to save the life of one baby and a mother from aborting her baby. I mean, let's face it, if it were just one person gaining, saving that one life or a thousand people saving that one life, I think we'd all say the same thing. It's worth all the sacrifice we can make. And so, yes, it might be a bit of a sacrifice because of the inclement weather, but that's the whole point. It's meant to be a sacrifice. Yeah. And uh, it's meant to offer a sacrifice of God in order to overcome the sacrifice of modern paganism that they're offering to Satan. And they're sacrificing the lives of these children on the, author, on the altars of these pagan demon gods of their convenience, comfort. And uh, this, is, this is what pagans have always done. Right? This is what they've slaughtered their infants for a good harvest, right? right? So they're still doing the same thing, but in a different way. Um, the names have changed, but in this case, it's not, it's not to protect the innocent. There are no innocent. Sure. In this, the innocent are the children, and um, we, have to, we have to do what we can to protect those innocents. Yep, definitely. Well, thank you, Father. Well, thank you. You're welcome. To yep. God bless you. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima, to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.